0: An Honorable Profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that identifies rising stars in the Democratic Party at the state and local level. I've been fortunate enough to be a New Dealer for years, first when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. We've been doing this podcast for a year now and I encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes with great leaders like Mayor Pete, Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, and candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas, Amanda Edwards. You can find us at NewDealLeaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. This has been a pretty bleak couple of weeks for our democracy. We could spend hours talking about everything going wrong, but I invite you to spend some time to hear about what's going right from one of the most effective political activists in our country, Emily's List's Emily Kane. I've known Emily for a long time. First, when she was a newly elected state representative in Maine on the fast track to leadership, to her new role for the last couple of years as the executive director of Emily's List, the premier organization in the country committed to getting women elected at all levels of government. She's a tremendous force for good. And I guarantee you that by the end of this episode, your faith will be restored and you'll be ready to get back in the fight. So without any further ado, here's Emily. Emily Kane, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is so fun to talk to you.
1: I am so thrilled. I am such a fan of the New Deal. I'm such a fan of the podcast and mostly of the community that you're able to support across the country.
0: Thank you, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to having this conversation because we were talking earlier, and you through Emily's List are really leading a revolution in this country. And um, tell us why, in the midst of all these meltdowns, we should feel really good about where our democracy is heading.
1: I love my work in Emily's List. As executive director, I help lead Emily's List with our president, Stephanie Shriak, as we work to elect Democratic women across the country. A lot of people forget that Emily's List has been doing this work for nearly 35 years, And in this current time, where there's a lot to be depressed about in the news, there's a lot that makes you anxious when you see the headlines of the day. What I love about our work at EMILY's List is it is sort of the antidote for what ails you. It is that bright spot that can make you excited. And, and I can tell you some examples. So, so Emily's List has a history of recruiting women to run for office. We've been begging them at times, known to do that over the years. And in our you know, nearly 35 years, we've now elected 150 women to the U.S. House, 26 United States senators, 16 governors, and more than 1,100 state and local officials. That in and of itself is great. But... When you think about where we've been in the last few years, when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, at that point, Emily's List had really been mostly doing the recruiting by begging and going to find those women. And our high watermark of women reaching out to us at that point was 920. And that was in 2016, during that election cycle. 920 women reached out to us proactively to say they wanted to make a plan to run for office. Well, then Donald Trump won. Hillary Clinton lost, Republicans took over state legislatures across the country and started threatening women's reproductive health, the environment, communities with a racist, misogynistic tone everywhere. And guess what? The women of America stepped up. Because within one month of that election, more than a thousand women signed up with EMILY's List. And that was when it was like four clicks into our website. So. I'm just going to cut to the chase and tell you that, yes, we had the Women's March, and yes, we had Parkland, and yes, we've had Me Too, and we've had Time's Up. But as of today, more than 50,000 women have signed up with EMILY's List to say they want to make a plan to run for office. That is good news for America, because these women are not necessarily all going to run now, but some of them are, and a lot of them did and they won in 2017, 2018, 2019. But they're making plans to run in the next five, 10 years and beyond. This is not a wave of women. This is a sea change, and that's why I love my job so much.
0: (laughs) That is some of the best news I've heard. Tell me what that means when you get women engaged at the state, at the national level, when you have women in power, what happens?
1: I'll give you some examples. You know, um, at Emily's List, we've really expanded our work at the state and local level. Partially because we've seen this need and this this growth of the number of women who want to run. And also because we have more than three decades of experience helping women get elected to all kinds of offices. That we can really put that to work on the ground. So I have a team of a few dozen people who, whose job it is to go out and recruit And they're recruiting the best pro-choice Democratic woman for the job. And they're taking on tough seats. So in 2018, Emily's List helped flip seven legislative chambers. That's a big deal, especially when you think about redistricting coming up around the corner. And what does that mean? Well, while we saw in states where we've not been able to yet take over majorities or win the governorship, what we saw were more than, I believe, 300 bills just in 2019 alone to roll back women's reproductive health. What we saw, though, is it was our women leading the way to stop it, whether it was in North Carolina, where the women led the um, the support of not overriding the governor's veto of, a, of an anti-choice bill there, whether it was in Maine, where the Democratic majorities led by Governor Janet Mills and Speaker Sarah Gideon and the women who took back the Senate there not only did they hold the line of women's reproductive health? They expanded access by providing more more providers, more medical providers who can who can do safe and legal abortions, but also by putting insurance coverage in place. And that's huge, that's transformative. So we can see the difference. And also in Nevada, where they not only have women, they have the majority of the legislature's women. I like to say it's amazing. Women are the majority of the Nevada legislature, and the Las Vegas Strip has not like caught on fire and separated like an earthquake. (laughs) It's not been Armageddon. Guess what? They're getting good things done. They're compromising. They're having good dialogue and focusing on the real issues. That's what it means.
0: Yeah. We had uh, Danielle Monroe Moreno, who's a state representative uh, from Nevada on this podcast. And she was saying, because she served before and after women took, took the majority. And she said that the quality of the conversation changed and the issues that just weren't on anyone's radar, maternal deaths, came up and now they're really engaging and making it work. And it, it, I mean, it was like night and day.
1: You're seeing things like paid family leave become not just a conversation about women and what they need but actually a conversation about what's best for families and the economy we see the conversation shift from where equal pay is sort of an afterthought to something that is fundamental to how we think about the economic potential for women and and i love when people say oh they're we're going to talk about women's issues and Honestly, now in 2019, as we head into 2020, there's no denying that women's issues are actually just economic issues. They're fundamental issues of justice and fairness, and and of really who we speak volumes about who we are. And I don't want to paint too rosy a picture. We have a long way to go, there's no question. With women making up not even 25% of Congress, not even 30% of state legislatures across the country, we are, in a lot of ways, just getting started. But what the transformative moments like 2018 do, or the flips in the flip of both chambers in Virginia this fall, where Emily's List Women led the way to flip both of those chambers and we invested more than $2 million there, what we actually get out of that is not just better policy, not just a more civil and productive government, what we actually get is an aspirations changing moment. It means that little girls and little boys around the country, when they see news stories about Congress or news stories about politics, they are hardly ever gonna see an image anymore that isn't, doesn't include women and also particularly women of color, right? Because the, the, the moment is not, is not just about women, it's about the diverse group of women who are now serving in state houses and in mayor's offices and in the US Congress around the country.
0: How have you managed that scale uh to i mean that level of growth that's like you know that's like tech companies would wish for that level of growth um, <laughs> how How have you been able to keep uh, you know to to focus on success to get the resources in the right place when you've had just this surge of potential candidates?
1: I have to say I have to give really. <sighs> Huge credit and to the leadership, vision, and tenacity of EMILY's List president, Stephanie Shriuk. Um Stephanie is a, a woman with a vision. Right? It was March of 2018 when she came back to the office after having lunch with uh, then leader Pelosi and said to me, so I told the leader we were going to take back the house with, with, uh, with just women. And I remember looking at her and saying, well, we're going to have to tell the team because we're going to need a bigger map and we're going to need more money. And what I know is that what we're doing, because it is that solution to the problem right now, um, is that we are attracting the resources. We are attracting the resources of of not just major donors, but primarily those small-dollar donors that show up every single month, that want to help. And it's a testament not just to the vision we have at EMILY's List, but also to the quality of the candidates we've recruited. That is something that oftentimes, and I say this, look, I was an elected official for 10 years. I was a New Deal leader, so proud. Uh, And one of the things that too many people don't pay enough attention to are the, the difference a quality candidate makes. And I think that's where, at Emily's List, we've been able to pull together the coalition of partners and resources to support these women. And it's not because they're just any any woman on the street. It's because, and not that any woman on the street couldn't run, because c- she could, but these women who we were elected in 2018, who are we elected in 2019 and who are on the ballot in 2020, are women with stories to tell that relate to their communities and a vision for leadership and leadership skills that are ready to go to get things done for their communities. And, and that is an essential ingredient to success. On the practical side, I've been there two and a half years. We've expanded the staff to more than 100 full time staff and had to tear down a wall at the Emily's List office <laughs> to make room for all of them. Um, and it, we're not stopping anytime soon.
0: I like how you sort of tear down a wall to tear down more walls. <laughs>
1: Literally. Uh, That's what we, we, we tear down the wall to, br- to break more glass ceilings, you know, is, is what we do. And uh, we have a lot more glass ceilings to break. We still have so many firsts. Every single day. Just this fall, we elected the first Muslim woman to the Virginia Assembly and to the Senate, Ghazala Hashmi. Uh, You know, there have been so many firsts in the last few years, the first Latinas elected to Congress from Texas. you look at Lauren Underwood in the western suburbs of Chicago, who's the first woman and the first African American to represent her district in Congress. You have these groundbreaking governors and senators and members of the House. And in, in Arizona, we have the mayors now of Flagstaff, of Tucson, and of Phoenix. I mean, we are uh, breaking new barriers every single day, and eventually we'll get to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, etc.,
0: Just a quick reminder that An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that identifies rising stars in the Democratic Party. I've been fortunate enough to be a New Dealer for years, first when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. We've been doing this podcast for a little more than a year, and I encourage you to check out some of our previous episodes with great leaders like Mayor Pete, Nevada Attorney General Aaron Ford, and candidate for U.S. Senate in Texas, Amanda Edwards. And as always, please tell your friends about an honorable profession and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Now, back to my conversation with Emily Kane of Emily's List. You've served, you were a leader in the Maine legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're doing this work around the country. I mean, make the pitch. I'm sure we have listeners out there right now, uh, women who are sitting in their cars or at their desks and they're angry and frustrated about what's going on. They want to improve their community, they want to improve their state, they want to improve their nation. What's What's the pitch from your own experience and from Emily's List?
1: I think for the women listening, if you see a problem, something that gets you up at night, you need to think about are you willing to put in the work to make the difference that you want to see in the world, right? This is not about being pre-qualified. There are too many women out there who the first thing they ask is, well, I, I don't have a law degree or I've I'm I've never been, fill in the blank, a, a banker. I've never been a town counselor, right? That that doesn't matter. When you look at the Constitution, the Constitution doesn't have a list of pre you know, employment prerequisites for running for office. It has an age, it has a citizenship, it has a geography sometimes, right? But it... It doesn't say that you have to have a college degree. It doesn't say you have to have been a parent or not. It doesn't say you have to have owned a business or not. So let's talk about what it does mean. It means and, and let's to, just yeah. prove.
0: I mean, like, like <laughs> if we look at our president, we we now prove that you have have to have you have no qualifications uh, to to either run or to serve. I mean, like,
1: well, let's be clear. We can do better than that. Yeah, you know, we, we can do better than that. And the women who are listening, you know, it, it's about uh, it is about making a bit of a plan, right? But first of all, it's about deciding that you want to do it and you're willing to do the work because. Emily's List, we can help you do the work. If you go to emilyslist.org, you can sign up for our Run to Win program. That's something, that's where those 50,000 women are. Uh, our Run to Win work is about helping women understand what it takes to run for office and get the tools they need, whether they want to run now or help another woman run now or run in the future. But I, here's, so here's my message. You are already qualified to run for office. You are already qualified to run for office. If you get up in the morning caring about something enough, that it it follows you around. What is the reason you get out of bed in the morning? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it because you care about cleaning up the water in your community? Is it because you care about making sure that our communities can be safe from gun violence? Is it because you are just so frustrated that that governing board in your community doesn't have anybody on it that looks like you? All of those are good reasons. For me, when I first started, I was a 24-year-old when I first got elected who had never thought about running for office. I have an undergraduate degree in music education and a master's degree in higher ed. My passion issue when I was 24 years old was about access, success, affordability in higher education. Based on my own experience going to the University of Maine and watching so many of my friends and, and my family try to put together the resources to go to college and stay in college. And and I knew if you could get more people fair access to that, then you can have a, a better opportunity in life. Doesn't mean you have to go, but that you shouldn't have to take on a million dollars in debt to go to college. And so for me, um, that was the issue where I started, but then that just grew into other issues in my community after I knocked on doors. You know, so, so if you care about something and you're willing to do the work, you're ready to run and you should call me.
0: I like it. Mm-hmm. Now... Talk about because you were, and I, we knew each other back we when, when we were both young we um, were
1: very young, yes
0: exactly, um but you went in, you know I, I would imagine as a young woman walk into an institution like a state legislature, <laughs> um, you know, uh, there's, there's going to be resistance almost immediately before you even try to move a single piece of legislation. Tell me how you asserted your leadership, built bridges, were able to, to quickly rise through the leadership um, to, to drive policy in your state.
1: I will say from the very outset, uh, maybe it's Maine, but I think generally most people are good people. Most people are not jerks. Right? I had to deal more with people uh, asking me whose office I was interning in or which member of the legislature did I work for when I first got elected. And, and that I always saw as an opportunity. It was a teaching moment because that person just hadn't met somebody before who was a 24-year-old woman who got elected to office in a three-way race and knocked on thousands of doors to do it. I always thought of it as maybe maybe this conversation is the last time that they're going to make that set of assumptions about the young woman they meet in the hallway at the Statehouse. Maybe next time they'll assume she might be an elected official. But I was there for 10 years, from age 24 to 34, and it was still happening to me, <laughs> even when I was the Democratic leader. And when I was the chair of the Appropriations Committee, my name was on the door, you know. And I remember people say, so you you work for this committee? And I'd point to the door and say, no, no, see that name? That's me. And there was this moment where they go, light bulbs or like caution signs were going off for them. So I I think, um, I believe generally in the goodness of people. I'm a fierce optimist. I work hard enough that I can afford to be one. Right, but I think in these state legislative environments, the difference women make, um, and young women in particular, can make is changing what what the vision of a member looks like. Right, what does an elected official look like? Well, elected official can look like me, can look like you, or can look like anybody who is listening. And what I found from a skill set perspective was getting to know the person, getting to know their reason that they get up in the morning to do this unglamorous, low-paying, twenty-four-seven work, which we love, you got to care about something more than just the title, because the title and the pay are not worth it, right? It's got to be about making the difference. And so I would find getting to know somebody, and whether it was because they have a kid who has disabilities, and they learned a lot about navigating the special education process, and it made them want to run to make it even better. Or maybe they were a small business owner. Right, who had wanted to try to grow their businesses, wanted to make it better for more small business owners. Maybe they were a lobsterman on the coast of Maine, right? looking at the environment in a, with a different lens than a scientist at the University of Maine. Right? The, the why you run reason, I often found I had more in common with people that by title and by party, you'd never think we could get along. Um, and as a result, uh, you know I missed the work a lot. I've been out now for about five years. I, I missed the work because it was in that work that you could really find common ground with somebody that, on the surface, you didn't think it was possible, um, and actually make things better.
0: The teachable moment. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it's like, it's it's a big opportunity. The first five times it happens, but, it gets old. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it's it, it when it's old. like when you're a chair of appropriations. Mm-hmm. And you're still having to go through teachable moments. Um, and I imagine this is the same for women candidates mm-hmm. at every level, members of Congress, you know, Nancy Pelosi on down. How do you teach women to think about those moments and to, to maintain the patience that is necessary? Because there's, there's well, blowback sometimes, if you just Sometimes of,
1: the answer isn't always so nice, right, right to be clear, yeah. um, depending on the context of the environment and, and how, how, the, how the comment is made, whether it's inquisitive, genuinely, or demeaning. Right. Right? There's a difference between asking me politely which office I work in and being like, so, honey, who do you work for? Right. That's not cool. Um, And I think the experience varies, particularly for women, depending on their age, depending on if they're a woman of color and what the environment is like in in their community or in their state house. But here's the difference. And you can look back, you can almost look back at pictures of women who've ran for office in the 80s and 90s all the way through today. They're the conventional wisdom across the board, Republicans and Democrats has changed, right? It used to be you'd see women wearing pantsuits. Some women love pantsuits. I hate pantsuits. Some people love them, and they look great on them. Other people, it feels like you're wearing a man's clothes, right? You, you see it in, like, the way the hairdos are. And what actually, I think my most favorite thing about the 2018 election is that we saw, even different than 16, I was on the ballot in 04, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, and 16. Wow. And saw a lot of change just in that window of time about even in my, in my own way. I remember when I was first elected, I went and bought a gray wool suit at the Goodwill because I didn't have any money and I didn't have a, a suit. And I bought a gray wool suit and a white button-up blouse at the Goodwill in Bangor, Maine to wear for my swearing-in day at the State House Because I wanted to look like I thought a legislator should look like right? And I wanted to wear that blazer. I really don't like blazers. I learned later and eventually freed myself of them around age 30. Um, but what I love about 2018 is you saw women running as themselves. You saw them in their, their pantsuits or their bright colored dresses. You saw them in their, in their pants and their leather jackets or their winter jackets. You saw them telling the stories of who they are. You saw them wear their hair the way they always have worn it. You saw them coming as their authentic best selves, despite whatever the conventional look of an elected official is. And the result of that is nothing short of beautiful. When you look at that picture of the women in white, those Democratic women in white, at the State of the Union earlier this year, it is breathtaking, and I will admit to you and everyone who's listening, that it made me cry when I saw it, right? With Nancy Pelosi with the gavel in her hand and that sea of women from all different backgrounds, express all wearing the same color, but none of them looking the same. It used to be when you thought of what does Congress look like, you pictured a lot of men wearing similar suits. They were blue, or they were black, or they were gray. And that was it. But now it's different. Now the normal includes those women in every which way that they look like. Um, and that, that is why when you get those comments, Right? And you get those, those comments about your age or your look or do you, that make you feel in question like whether or not you belong here. Now you don't have to look very far for, for inspiration to make you stand up tall and say, "Hello. <laughs> my name is, and here's my title." right? Because you, 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 they can't take that away from you, right? When you're the senator, when you're the mayor, when you're the state representative, when you're the member of Congress. It really makes you say, oh boy, it reminds you of we have have a ways to go and we can't can't rest on our laurels um, because the the new normal of women running, women winning, women leading, diverse women at every step of the way is the new normal and it's here to stay. Um, And all of us have an opportunity to be a part of uh, reinforcing that every day in our work, and is it extra pressure? Yeah, I mean men don't have that pressure, <laughs> it's not like white men, especially across America is like you don't you know you're not you're not you're not bearing the burden of every other man who's ever been in in public office, where for women, there's that time period where you feel like and you 're actually often treated like you being there means you represent all women. I, I recently heard a conversation where the question was asked to a panel of women what do you wish your male colleagues would know about your experience? And the panel was really good, and it was talking, they talked about how women do have to think about how we look because it changes how we're treated. That there is a question of safety that we have to think about, right? Because of the way we're treated, many of us in elected office have had to deal with, you know, sort of security issues where you deal with law enforcement because there are are threats involved, things like that. Um, That we do often, Uh, we talk amongst ourselves about sort of who treats women better than others. And and I will say one thing that I would wish my male colleagues could have known is that not all women are the same. Right, Just because you have one at the table does not mean you've got the representative for all women of all kinds sitting at your table. And that one woman isn't enough. Because I can't tell you how many times I would be asked to speak for all women and all young people, when I was a young member of the legislature. And I would always say, well, it's just me speaking from my perspective. Um, and that's why, again, the diversity and number of women makes such a difference.
0: So I was listening to the same panel that you were yes. uh, listening to. And the thing that absolutely struck a chord with me was, so I'm an elected official. I bring my kids to the community meetings. It's. Hopefully, good for them. It's seeking it on some level. People are nicer to me when I have my kids. Um, and but the women elected officials are saying, "Look, I bring my kids, and the kids sit there on their on my iPhone, um, mm-hmm. and people judge me as a mother." And so it's a totally different experience for me. And that was like mind blowing. Our women.
1: I mean, I I remember getting asked. Um, you know, I'm I'm in my late I'm 39. I'll be 40 next year. I, I don't have children at this point, um, but I would remember being a. 32 year old woman knocking on doors in my state senate race and having people just say to me at the door, I'd say, Hi, I'm Emily Kane running for state senate. And within two minutes, they'd ask me either, Do you have children? Why don't you have children? Are you going to have children? Even things like, What does your husband think about what you're doing? I always thought, I bet my male colleagues don't have this, right? And uh, our women now who are moms and serving in Congress, you know, I think of Katie Porter, a single mom. You know, a survivor of domestic abuse, amazing attorney, mem- elected to Congress from California. She was running in a primary where there was an, a, a man who sure is a really nice guy who also had similar age children, and she was the one getting asked questions like, "Who's going to take care of your children? Are, are you, you know, what what will happen to your children?" <laughs> like, he wasn't getting those questions. Um, And again, uh, these women who have kids who are in Congress or who are in the governor's mansions or who are in the mayoral offices, uh, they're blazing a trail for the rest of us, too. Um, And again, changing that view that you actually, you can be and you are a successful mother at the same time that you are a successful elected official.
0: So... For those of us who are good want, for
1: you for knowing, no, noticing the difference.
0: Well, I did. That's the point. Is is that I actually didn't notice the difference until a woman told me that. Oh. that. So <laughs> I, I, I'm. Uh, I, so I I learned. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm sort of curious about. Is for those of us, whether men or women, who want to encourage more women to come into elective office, because it is it's better. You get better outcomes for your whole community mm-hmm. when that happens. Um, besides, obviously, not asking people whether they're staff. Besides, not judging don't them. Don't assume they're staff. Don't assume they're staff. Right? Don't
1: assume. Yeah. that's a key part. Um,
0: what other barriers do we need to remove in order to to make it easier and for for the women who do run to feel to feel more empowered and less like the like you know like uh, the doubt the self doubt that that you talked about when you're when people ask you that it's not just well, I have to straighten them out. Now you, inevitably you, there's some self doubt that comes in. What other barriers do we need to,
1: there's a, there's a lot of them, right? right. So, so women are definitely, some of it is setting, leading by example, right? Uh, being a, a colleague who, who sort of catches himself before he says something about age, gender, what you're wearing. That, that's it's different to say that's a really nice dress versus like, oh, you wore a dress today. Those are different. Right. And one is a little creepy, right? And also, when you think about the time, time of day of meetings and where you have them, that is one of the, the things I will say as a young woman in elected office. Often, a lot of times, work in state houses or city councils happens at the bar after the meeting, right? But as a 25-year-old young woman in a legislature where most everybody was a lot older than me, showing up at the bar for me after a meeting at night, late by myself, you get a different reaction and a different story and narrative that comes out the next day. If that, that young woman was at the bar late last night versus those bunch of counselors were you know, swapping stories at the bar last night. You don't picture the young woman in the crowd when you say that second part, right? So being cognizant of where you are and how it feels to be there because your experience, as you, you yourself, as a white male is gonna be different than a young woman or a woman or a woman of color in that environment. Do you have to have that at the bar or are you cognizant of where you're sitting, who's with you, um, being mindful of that. But the biggest thing is go ask a woman to run for office and tell her you're going to support her, right? I mean, I can go on all day about the environment or the lack of, child care for women when they're in office in state house facilities especially, the lack of lactation space for women who are nursing, who work in the capitol and also who are elected. we can go through those structural things all day long. But the bottom line is the best way to make it change is to help a woman run for office. right? When, whenever you decide to finish, recruit a woman to come behind you.'t don't, don't be neutral on that, right? Go find a woman that you're excited about and, and get her thinking about running. You know talk um, to your women colleagues about their experience. Ask them to share with you what it's like to work in the environment that you're a part of and and have that open dialogue with them. I bet you will learn things and see things differently than you ever realized before. Right. And I think that it is the, the truth is there's not just one thing to do. It's an all of the above thing. And it's a there's a cultural piece uh, and a, a gender dynamic piece that's societal that we can start to affect change, but. F- For us at Emily's List, when we think about one of the best ways to make changes, it's about winning elections. Because when we win elections, we sort of force that. If we just, Emily's List, I told you earlier, all those big numbers of the women we've elected, right? 150 in the House, 26 in the Senate, 16 governors, more than 1,100 state and local officials. If Emily's List had not been started in 1985, I guarantee you, some of those women, sure, they would have gotten elected. Of course they would have. But a lot of them wouldn't have. And it's not because they wouldn't be qualified. It's because change really is something that you have to force sometimes. When Emily's List started in 1985, we were, you know, nowadays people think of us as this big establishment political organization, but we're really scrappy, number one. And number two, we fight for everything that we do and that we get and the women we, we, we work for um, and we work to elect. But we are, we're seen from the beginning as a disruptor. And we still are because we're not at a normal yet where people automatically think uh, that that a woman can lead in this way. Um, And until we get to that point, um, then maybe we'll feel satisfied, but until then, we're gonna keep working.
0: So we are heading into one of the biggest election years in our nation's history. Give me three Emily's List candidates that people should know about, support, get excited about, and um, make happen.
1: Oh, wow, okay. This is exciting. There are so many of them. Uh, I am going to... All right, I'll give you... I'll start with uh, the Senate. I think in the Senate... I'm partial to Maine, of course. Speaker Sarah Gideon is a friend of mine and is running an amazing campaign. But I think people should keep their eye on Teresa Greenfield running for the Senate in Iowa against Joni Ernst. She is, a, in her words, a farm kid with farm values, and she is doing amazing things um, as we look to uh, flip that that, that ever-changing to purple uh, district. I think we, uh, you know, Emily's list takes on primaries, sometimes controversial primaries. And we are uh, taking on Congressman Cuellar in Texas. Um, and we've got Jessica Cisneros running there. Jessica was actually his intern once upon a time. She's an immigration attorney. She has a personal immigration story to tell. People need to look her up right now while you listen to this podcast. And you, you need to learn her story and, and look at that district and see she, she has a path to victory. And Emily's List is working hard to make sure she's going to get there. And then I I will also add, I think the incumbents who need to get reelected cannot go unnoticed here. Um, And that's where I have to mention one of my favorites, I'm not supposed to have favorites, but Lauren Underwood in Illinois. You know, Lauren was elected as a 32-year-old African-American nurse who had never thought about running for office, has a pre-existing health care condition, that uh, she went to a, a she basically her congressman said he wouldn't vote to take away protections for pre-existing conditions and then he did and she said well i'm gonna run and again she i mentioned her earlier but she's the first first african-american and first woman but getting women like her reelected next time uh, is just as important as electing new women, right? So reelecting women like Lauren is just, just as important as electing women like Jessica and Teresa. Um, but I think what people need to look out for are not just the women candidates, but women voters in 2020 uh, and, and, and how the, in those battleground districts women are going to make the difference on the ballot and in the ballot box.
0: Emily, Cain, thank you for everything you've done. Um, thank you for your your service in the main legislature and now serving our entire country in um, I, I can't tell you how, how proud and happy I am to have you on the podcast and, and the work you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. It's my privilege to, to be on your show and also to be, uh, I, I feel lucky to do my job every day. I get out of bed, talk about what I get out of bed now. I get out of bed now, I get excited to go to work and because of the potential for what can happen and because of the change I already see happening around the world. And it's, it's a joy to work at EMILY's List. And everyone here should check out emilyslist.org. Uh, we are an amazing community to be a part of. We'd love to have you.
0: Go get them. Win, Win in 2020. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces this podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.